Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. On the show today, I'm excited to talk with Patrick Wilson, who is a registered dietitian and assistant professor of exercise science at Old Dominion University. He specializes in the relationship between gastrointestinal issues, diet, nutrition, and exercise. He is also the director of Old Dominion University Human Performance Lab and wrote a book called The Athlete's Gut, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. I highly recommend reading this book and using it as a reference guide for athletes who experience stomach problems that affect their racing, which might actually be almost all athletes, I suspect. Hope you enjoy the show and gain a few useful tips you can apply to your training and racing. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Dirk. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to talk about the gut. It's always uh, <laughs> something that can be fun and sometimes a little bit gross to talk about, depending on what direction you go in. That's funny because we actually don't talk about it enough. And, you know, I mean, as an athlete myself, um, you know, it, it's so funny because we, we talk so much about training the muscles and strength training and the you know, aerobic side of things and all the intervals we do and all the time spent in the pool and running and whatever it might be. But then there's actually very little kind of devoted um, time, if you will, to the gut or those discussions. But yet it is one of the biggest obstacles athletes have to overcome. I mean, I, I mean you've seen that obviously in ultra running. A lot of the research has showed that's a, is that not the number one reason for DNFing in ultra running uh, events? Yeah. The, the importance of the gut, specifically like during competition or before competition, is definitely going to vary between sports. But ultra running is definitely one of those where it's hugely impactful because obviously a big part of success for any ultra runner is being able to fuel during the competition itself just because the duration is so long and the fuel demands are so high. You'll see various estimates of how common severe gut distress is in different events, but you know some of the better surveys – like done at the Western States Endurance Run, you see, you know, roughly um, some years, 40% of the runners saying that gastrointestinal distress is contributing to negative effects on their performance. If you look at dropouts, it is the single leading cause. Hmm. Um, it's not the majority because there's like 10 or 15 different causes for why people drop out of an ultra race, but of any one thing, it, it tends to top the list, at least in those surveys that were done at the Western States Endurance Run. So yeah, I mean, it can be hugely impactful for some athletes. Now, if you're doing something a lot shorter or in more skill-based sports, it's probably less likely it's going to completely ruin your performance, but it may still be bad enough that it has some negative effects occasionally. Maybe not every single competition, but on occasion, almost every athlete is going to run into one of these problems eventually. Absolutely. Have you seen anything, any of these type of surveys or studies centered around, you know, Ironman? There are some studies that have looked at the rates or the severity of gastrointestinal symptoms in Ironman. I want to, off the top of my head, I don't recall 
um, the exact numbers. The, some of the difficulty with the research in this area is the symptoms that are asked about, because there's probably anywhere in between seven and 10 symptoms you could kind of ask about, maybe a little bit more than that. And not all surveys ask about all the same symptoms. Mm. And then how do you quantify the severity? You could ask on a zero to 10 scale, which I've done that commonly for some of my studies. And if someone reports are a one or two, you could still define them as having GI symptoms, but it wouldn't necessarily be bad enough that it really impacts their performance, right? And even if they had like a rating of four or five, but it was for burping or for flatulence, it, it probably isn't going to really hurt their performance in the end. Right. Uh, whereas a three or four for nausea, bloating, cramping, that's definitely more likely to be impactful. But as a rule of thumb, the longer the exercise duration goes, the more likely it is an athlete is going to experience some major gastrointestinal you know, malfunction uh, during the course of an event. So Ironman would definitely be one of those races where it's fairly common to have those types of problems. So if we get down to what is, I guess, reasoning for that, I was getting into the details of the book and it never really associated the blood flow and the osmolality and how important, you know, that really is to gut function. Can you go into some of that for us? Sure. I mean, in terms of the duration, one of the reasons I think you see higher rates of GI symptoms, uh, it's kind of multiple fold. Uh, you're more likely maybe to uh, have fluid imbalances over longer exercise durations, maybe larger amounts of dehydration uh, in some cases. Uh, the other thing, especially with running events, is just the repetitive impact over time. Um, you're talking about thousands and thousands of str strides over the course of an ultra marathon. And as you progress farther into that race, there's more and more muscle damage that occurs. And some of those breakdown products uh, that come from the muscle, uh, specifically when it comes to nausea, which is a pretty prevalent symptom among ultra runners, and it's one that tends to be really uh, difficult to get rid of um, or to deal with, and it can mm -hmm. hurt your race performance quite, quite a bit. Uh, that's one of the things in your blood that theoretically might trigger in your brain kind of this nausea center uh, or vomiting center uh, that contributes to the feeling of you know, feeling like you got to throw up whatever you just ate. Uh, but there's many things that increase in the blood over the course of exercise. You've got stress hormones, you've got hydration-related hormones like um, arginine vasopressin. Uh, and most of these hormones in large amounts or in higher amounts, we know can contribute to nausea. So I, I think that's one of the major reasons why you see such a high rate in ultra-endurance running. And that probably would include in, you know, an Ironman uh, where at the end you're doing a full marathon after doing, you know, hours of exercise before that, you just kind of get this stew of stuff in your blood that can trigger nausea. Now, the other symptoms, uh, it kind of depends. Uh, it may be that your gut lining is starting to be kind of damaged. Um, the junctions that are kind of usually tight that hold the cells together in your intestines start to loosen up. Uh, and it may cause a leakiness of things like bacteria and endotoxins that can make um, gastrointestinal symptoms worse. So uh, it's really probably a, a multitude of reasons why prolonged exercise is associated with more severe GI issues in most cases. Right. So you talked a lot about, you know, these endotoxins, bacteria being in the blood, the loose uh, leaky gut uh, is what you've termed it. 
definitely get that. What about in the gut itself? So in the stomach, um, the osmolality, you know, how important is that, you know, the, the concentration of what you're taking in and how does that relate to blood flow and possible problems? Yeah. So beverage concentration and beverage osmolality, that does become important, particularly like immediately before and during exercise itself. Now, uh, post-exercise and pre-exercise, th- those are different scenarios. So when I'm okay. talking about beverage osmolality and uh, concentration, it really is most relevant to pay attention to when you're selecting beverages to drink you know, during an Ironman, during an ultra race, whatever it may be. And when you have a really concentrated beverage, um, either because it has a lot of carbohydrates or it has a lot of electrolytes like sodium or a combination of both, uh, it can slow down emptying from the stomach a little bit because one of the things that regulates how fast fluids will empty from your stomach is the beverage concentration uh, and the osmolality. Uh, Once the beverage starts to get into the small intestine, if it's very concentrated or, again, it has a very high osmolality, what will typically happen is there's going to be some fluid that comes from your blood and is pulled out into the intestinal lumen, kind of the tube space, to at least temporarily um, uh, equate or get the osmolalities a little bit closer between the luminal space and the blood space. Uh, so that can cause in some people like kind of a cramping sensation, kind of a stomach ache. Maybe, you know, someone who's down like uh, – a, a soda or a really concentrated juice during a race and, you know, the next 10 or 15 minutes, they kind of feel like they've got a little bit of a stomach ache. That may be part of the reason why is the, the beverage concentration and the osmolality is just too high. Now, eventually that beverage is going to get absorbed, but it may just take longer. So when you're um, looking to facilitate the fastest absorption as possible, you probably don't want something super, super concentrated uh, in terms of a beverage. So you want maybe something a little bit closer to your blood in terms of osmolality. We usually call that isotonic. Right. Um, hypertonic would be something that is a lot more concentrated in the blood. And hypotonic would be something like water uh, that doesn't have uh, much at all in terms of, of electrolytes uh, or carbohydrate, obviously. So that's most important during exercise itself. And it's most relevant when we're talking about large beverage volumes. If you're just sipping on a like a hypertonic beverage, you know, you may or may not have problems. But if that's your main uh, beverage source, like that's all you're drinking is a hypertonic beverage, that is potentially a recipe for gut problems. Um, so uh, that's just something to be aware of uh, when picking a beverage during competition, during training itself. Okay. So how about gels? This is, you, I'm sure you've been asked about this a, a ton. You know, a gel is obviously super concentrated, very little liquid within it. It's you know, 25 grams per shot, I, I believe, for the most part, of carbohydrate. Um, what are, any kind of rule of thumb around gels? Yeah, gels are interesting because obviously you can mix and match gels with whatever rate of fluid you want to consume. So it, scientifically speaking, it's a little bit harder to separate all those different effects of the beverage volume uh, versus the rate of gel ingestion. Different gels have different osmolalities. Uh, different gels have different types of carbohydrates. So that's where it becomes a little bit problematic to give just like a simple rule of thumb with gels is because they do vary a lot from product to product. What I would say is because there are so many options out there, 
you really need to practice with those specific products that you plan to use. And if you're going to do something really aggressively, which would be anything more than like two gels an hour, uh, then yeah, you definitely need to train yourself to handle that. And you may need to play around with different products and experiment to see, okay, my gut seems to be able to handle this particular product for whatever reason. You know, maybe it has like um, more maltodextrin as the main kind of glucose source, whereas another gel maybe has, you know, more glucose and dextrose. I mean, uh, there's a variety of things that could contribute to tolerability uh, with gels. So that's a tough one to really have like just a simple rule of thumb. The only thing I could kind of come up with a simple rule of thumb is if you're going to do more than two an hour, uh, you really need to kind of train with that at least for a couple of weeks before a competition. Okay. We'll get into training the gut a little later on. If we continue on around factors that influence, you know, gut problems. You've talked a lot about time factor, um, but the intensity side of it, that it's equally as important. It would, I would feel, I mean, I can go for a six hour walk and eat a steak along the way. Right. (laughs) So therefore it's not simply time. It now becomes time at what intensity. Um, and why does intensity play such a big factor on the, you know, gut, yeah. Symptoms. Yeah. I mean, that's a good example or a good way to put it is that, you know, extreme exercise duration can cause or contribute to GI symptoms, but that assumes you're kind of giving a maximal effort, right? If you're just walking for six hours, you could kind of eat whatever you want for the most part, and you're probably going to be fine. So it is this interaction between intensity and duration. And naturally, as uh, events or competitions get longer, obviously the average intensity for those events are going to go down. So there's that kind of inverse relationship between Mm -hmm. duration and intensity. So what we do see is that there are certain gut symptoms that are are worse when you look at shorter, really high-intensity bouts of exercise. So whether that be a tempo run, an um, all-out race pace type thing, interval workouts, repeated sprints, uh, nausea is definitely one of those that kind of tends to be more prevalent when you do really high intensity stuff, especially when you're doing like repeated sprints, you know, anybody who's been like a 400 meter runner in track, you know, is the feeling of feeling nauseated after giving a full out effort, uh, in a race like that, or the 800 meters. Um, the reason for that is a fewfold, uh, distribution of blood flow changes pretty dramatically depending on the exercise intensity at modest exercise intensities, say, you know, 50% VO2 max, your gut blood flow is pretty well maintained. Your body generally has enough um, blood flow to distribute to both the muscle and the gut to be able to function appropriately. But when you get up to like, you know, 90% VO2 max or something like that, your muscles just require so much blood flow and so much oxygen delivery that something's going to take a hit. And that something generally is the gut. And that can contribute to Uh, symptoms is a lack of blood flow. Because when you have a lack of blood flow, you have a lack of oxygen delivery uh, to the gut. And that can cause some level of of dysfunction. The other reason is as a byproduct of giving a a really good uh, effort, you know, whether it be sprinting or interval workout, your body releases lots of stress hormones like adrenaline, noradrenaline. And those hormones we know from other research Uh, act on the brain to trigger nausea in some people. And that may be part of the reason why if you, for example, take a lot of stimulants or caffeine before a real intense workout, sometimes people have more nausea because it's exacerbating 
the stress hormone release. Same thing would be for fasting. Fasting tends to increase the release of uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline if you've done it for more than eight to 10 hours. And if you pair that with intense exercise, nausea is more prevalent in people who are fasted uh, and who are doing something really intense versus somebody who maybe ate a couple hours ago. So yeah, it's it probably depends to some extent on the symptom that we're talking about. Some symptoms are gonna be more prevalent uh, with different exercise intensities and durations, but nausea is one that tends to be uh, common with both with both very short, high intensity stuff, and then also very super long stuff, but maybe for different reasons. Right. Um, the actual underlying causes can differ in those scenarios. Well, I have to bring it up. You mentioned fasting. Um, there's there's a, a I don't know if a trend, but certainly athletes are doing fasted workouts in an attempt to raise their fat oxidation uh, capabilities. Um, and I think you mentioned this possibly in the book, but by doing fasted workouts, does that not just inevitably train the, the gut to empty um, at a slower rate? I think it depends on how often you're doing it. I think if you do it once or twice a week during you know your kind of moderate intensity workouts, so like for example, if you woke up in the morning, decided you didn't want to really eat before a moderate intensity workout and did that once or twice per week, but then on your and some of your other training runs, you are focusing on fueling. I don't think it would be a big deal in terms of your gut's function. But okay. if you're habitually uh, doing fasted training almost all the time, or just in general, you're not consuming enough energy in your diet. Uh, like if you have sort of what we call relative energy deficits, you're just completely under fueling. That is probably going to be more problematic than periodically doing some fasted training. I mean, I think there's some potential benefits for especially endurance athletes to do periodic fasted training. I think there's still a lot of you know research that needs to be done to show how big of the benefit, in what situations, uh, what's the best way to implement those strategies. But I wouldn't be overly concerned about it so long as you know during the week you are practicing feeling during some of your training sessions. Hmm. Okay. Got it. Um, you mentioned in the book about age and training experience and how it gets better with age. You know, why is that and what have you seen? Yeah, we don't have a clear answer which one is more important. Is it more important that as people get older, there's something physiologically going on that's reducing the severity or the incidence of some gut issues? Or is it just that, you know, typically people who are older have been training for longer and are better able to kind of prevent or get a hold of some of the gut issues that they've experienced in the past. And my guess is it's probably a combination of both. So there's studies where we look at the correlations and try and find things that predict GI symptoms. And honestly, the correlations are never very that strong. Um, they're usually pretty modest. Uh, and that's because for any symptom, there's probably going to be a multitude of factors that play a role. But consistently, age is, is inversely correlated with the severity of the incidence of symptoms. So the older people get the less likely they are to develop symptoms. Now, physiologically, there's some research to suggest that older people are less sensitive to catecholamines, those stress hormones. And those stress hormones are, are playing a role in some of the, for example, blood flow changes that occur with exercise. So if they're less sensitive to those stress hormones or maybe they're releasing less, then maybe they have less uh, or smaller reductions in gut blood flow would be one theory. Potentially, they're, they're just doing less intense training. They're just getting more experienced. So through practice, through trial and error, 
they may have figured out, hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this before my runs or my uh, cycling sessions or whatever else I'm doing. Uh, but they both, both experience and age are modestly correlated with the incidence and severity of GI symptoms during training and competition. All right. Older, wiser wisdom <laughs> yeah. comes into play. <laughs> What have you seen with uh, males versus females in terms of uh, GI issues um, prevalence? So certainly there are symptoms that are more prevalent or severe uh, in women, and that would tend to be things like bloating and constipation. Occasionally you'll see certain symptoms more common in men. Probably the most notable will be something like heartburn. But overall, if you kind of add up all the symptoms together and like add the scores, if they were to rate all symptoms on a, like a zero to 10 scale, generally they'd be a little bit higher in women. Now the bloating and constipation, obviously that could be related to some extent to menstrual cycle changes. Um, those symptoms tend like, for example, bloating tend to be worse uh, during different phases of the menstrual cycle. But it may also be because uh, transit through the gut and the colon in particular, tends to be a little bit slower in women. So if you're, for example, eating lots of carbohydrate and fiber in your diet, uh, once some of that fiber gets to the start of the large intestine, for a female, it's going to take longer for that fiber to get to the end of the colon. Now, what does that matter? Hmm. If the fiber sits in the colon for longer, that is more time for the bacteria there to break it down, to produce gas. Uh, that's one of the byproducts of fermenting fiber in the gut is going to be things like methane, uh, hydrogen, and carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Also, if that fiber is sitting in the colon longer, that's more time for fluid to be reabsorbed, which would contribute to constipation. So that, that's one of the explanations for why in women you're probably more likely to see both constipation and bloating are some of these differences in transit time. It's just on average there seems to be uh, a slower uh, transit of things, especially through the colon among women. And this is not just true among athletes. I recently published a study uh, with data from the general population and probably the most consistent or one of the most consistent predictors of constipation was just female gender. So um, yeah, it's there's some differences between men and women, but on average, women kind of uh, tend to get more of it, unfortunately for them. So let's get into some of the finer details of strategies. Um, talking about fueling, we, we, we touched on it a bit, um, osmolality, for example, at a higher level. But when we actually start counting carbs, you know, carbohydrate ingestion per hour, this 35 to 45 grams an hour for one to two hours seems to be that kind of just happy place, right? Where okay, you shouldn't really expect too many problems here. Is there a reason for athletes to push beyond that level, going above 50 grams an hour? I think the only athletes that really would seriously need to consider that are those who are doing stuff that are, number one, pretty prolonged, more than two to three hours. And then number two, are on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of their ability. They're, um, okay. they're better athletes who are sustaining a higher percentage of their VO2 max. Okay. So, it, you know, if you're like a middle of the pack or back of the pack, you know, even ultra runner, and you're going at 45% of your view to max for the whole race, you don't need to be consuming 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour because you're not even probably burning that much in terms of uh, carbohydrate fuel if you're, if you're not exercising at a fairly high intensity. 
So it depends on duration of exercise and then the caliber of the athlete. So better athletes uh, who are doing longer stuff, that's a situation where you'd expect them to maybe benefit from a higher intake. Somewhere between 60, 90 grams per hour is typically where you see the recommendations. There have been a couple of studies recently that have suggested that theoretically you could go up to 120. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical that that's going to lead to better performance, but some athletes are even trying that at this point. There was a recent study um, in, I think, Spanish trail mm -hmm. runners where they did- Was that Itor Virabay? Yeah, I think they did three conditions. One was like the normal, one was like 60 grams. Yep. No, it was 60, 90, and 120. So they were all right. pretty aggressive. Right. Yeah, that's that's a lot of carb to eat. So um, uh, that's you're looking at five to six gels an hour. So number one, you'd obviously need to train and do that a number of times before you ever consider implementing it in a race. And I'm not, you know, I'm not yet convinced that that will actually lead to any better performance. I mean, we'll wait and mm. see to see if there are studies that come out showing that it does. Um, but I'm not yet ready to say that you need to go that crazy. Right. So we've seen or heard that Eliud uh, Kipchoge, who set the sub two hour marathon, uh, did do 100 or 200, 100 grams an hour. Yeah. So that gets to the intensity side. Obviously, he's trying to set a world record. He's at the very upper limit of that capability and obviously has been training for it <laughs> within his training. So if we are going for over, let's say we are trying to podium, qualify, whatever it might be for uh, Kona, Ironman Hawaii, or whatever top uh, level competition, if we are going to go for the 75 grams an hour Talk to me about the, the the selection of that carbohydrate choice. Yeah. So the research on this kind of pushing to the higher end of the spectrum and trying to be really aggressive about carbohydrate intake. I mean, there's been studies over the last probably about 15 years. Uh, a lot of them were done, uh, I think, with Askrid Yukendrop's lab mm -hmm. and some of his colleagues where they would feed uh, cyclists, in most cases, either a like pure glucose beverage. Uh, and then in another condition, they would get basically the same amount of carbohydrate per hour, but a mixture of glucose and fructose. So the studies have varied in the ratios of how much glucose to fructose, but uh, anywhere from two to one to 50-50 have kind of been the typical ratios. And generally what you see is that more of that ingested carbohydrate gets burned for energy when you, you consume a mixture of glucose and fructose. But that really only happens if you're consuming more than like 50 to 60 grams per hour. Mm -hmm. And that's because when you get at that level, the transporters in the intestine that absorb glucose and fructose get saturated um, if you're going above, you know, 45, 50 grams an hour. So that's kind of the, the limit for both of those sugars is about 45 to 50 grams an hour. If you add them together, that's about 90 to 100 grams an hour is what you could probably handle uh, with those two sugars. So if you instead try to consume like 90 to 100 grams per hour of just glucose, or even like maltodextrin or any other source of uh, carbohydrate that is a you know chain of glucose, uh, it's unlikely that all that is going to be absorbed. And the problem with that is when an unabsorbed carbohydrate sits in the gut, it causes problems. Fluid gets pulled out into that space to kind of, again, equate the osmolality. Uh, once that Glucose gets down into the colon and the distal small intestine. It's going to get fermented by bacteria. That's going to cause bloating and gas. 
So you kind of think of the combination of symptoms of loose stools or just to go number two, bloating and gas, uh, not generally going to be great for performance. So if you want to push the boundaries of uh, your performance and you're doing something more prolonged, probably at least a full marathon distance and beyond, and you're going to consume you know, more than 60, 70 grams an hour of carbohydrates, you definitely want to probably go with a mixture of glucose and fructose. Um, would be the number one recommendation. Maybe including some maltodextrin as the source of glucose, because that can, in some cases, um, have an effect on gastric emptying. It maybe is emptied from the stomach a little bit more quickly if you just pick something with dextrose or glucose in it. Uh, so there's some other little things you can do uh, in terms of beverage or product choice. But the number one thing I would say is make sure you get a mixture of glucose and fructose. Right. And the underlying reason for that is because they have individual s different receptors that they attach to to get absorbed. And have you seen any studies where are you just born with the number of receptors or do you is that part of the experience of training? Can you actually training the gut increase the number of receptors? Therefore, you can improve your capability over time. Yeah. The animal it. studies that we have say that, yes, you can increase some of these transporters not directly shown in humans as far as I'm aware, partly just because you'd have to take samples like biopsies of right. the small intestine, which is not an easy thing to do. But there are there's indirect evidence to suggest that um, this may also be happening in humans. Uh, one study looked at kind of a training the gut protocol over, I think it was four weeks. Uh, one group got extra carbohydrates. Uh, the other group got extra fat in their diet. And after this kind of four week of training the gut to handle more carbohydrate, the group that got the extra carbohydrates, uh, were, they were burning more of the ingested carbohydrate. They kind of use these uh, special forms of glucose that you can trace in the body. Uh, and they showed that more of that was being burned. Now, it, you can't say whether that was because of better absorption or better entry into the muscle or something going inside the muscle itself. But the th suggestion is that it's probably having to do with the rate of absorption in the gut. So there's some indirect evidence to say that this also happens in humans. Got it. So on the hydration side of things, you know, there's been studies that show drink to thirst. Obviously, a lot of athletes stick to a schedule as well. How would you go about advising folks around hydration? And there's no one rule here, obviously, because weather, you know, mm -hmm. you can be... 50 degrees or 95 degrees. So is it always just drink to thirst? I tend to not be in that camp of it's always drink to thirst. To me, it's kind of drink to thirst if it's less than two hours, I would say is probably a pretty good rule of thumb in my mind. The duration of the event typically isn't long enough for you to, accrue, to, for you to accrue such a large fluid deficit that it's going to impact your performance negatively. There might be some exceptions to that, like in a really hot and humid environment, or if an athlete starts out a little bit dehydrated, then drinking to thirst may not actually be the ideal for that shorter type of event. But I think in, in most cases, drinking to thirst is probably going to be uh, somewhat adequate in those shorter events. The other reason why you might not want to go too uh, aggressive with drinking in those shorter events is if you're trying to like replace most of your sweat losses, um, because those events are shorter, the intensity is naturally higher and sweat rates are typically higher. Mm -hmm. And if you have an athlete who's sweating, let's say, one and a half liters an hour, um, replacing even two-thirds of that can be pretty challenging. I mean, replacing all of it is is, is going to be a recipe recipe for gut distress. I mean, try drinking 
a liter and a half of fluid per hour while you're exercising. It's not going to go particularly well for most people. Right. Um, so for longer events, my suggestion would probably be to at least get an idea about your sweat rates in different environmental conditions. So throughout the year, uh, on different days where there's different temperatures, go out for an hour at your race pace, see what your sweat rate is based on how much body mass you're losing in that hour. And there's online calculators people can use if they don't know how to do this. It's, it's not too complicated. Just to get a sense of, okay, how much am I actually losing um, at this pace in this environment, roughly speaking? So that if mm-hmm. you want to do something more regimented, you at least have somewhere to start. Uh, and I would not say replace 100% of what you lose, but maybe half to three quarters, depending on uh, the situation, would be maybe a rule of thumb for me. Um, it just depends a lot on the environment and uh, the length of the race, your opportunities to drink, you know, what fluid sources you're going to be bringing with you, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I, I've certainly done a lot of hot races in, in, in my time. Um, and when I think about sodium replacement, I, I don't know why, but I always gravitated towards sodium during was like number one, you know, take more sodium in during the event. Mm-hmm. That's where I think most people tend to gravitate towards when they think hot conditions. And then secondarily, it's it's post-race um, or, or training, obviously. So really hot training session, get it back in right afterwards. But you know, I never actually got to the point where I was thinking about pre-exercise, pre-race sodium intake as, as a strategy. So if we walk through each of those, um, talk to us about sodium replacement supplements during a hot event. Sure. So there's, you kind of hit the nail on the head there with different dynamics with before, during, and afterwards. So there's this concept of fluid loading that's been around for a while. And originally, I think most of the studies looked at using glycerol, which is kind of a three-carbon molecule you can ingest that. The osmolality of that uh, allows you to hold on to more fluid uh, in your blood. So there have been studies that have asked people to load with glycerol, and you see that they have higher plasma volumes, for example, when they do that, if they do it you know, a few hours before exercise, with the idea that you're going to be sort of hyperhydrated going into a hot and humid environment. And there are some studies that su- su- uh, suggest that that may actually help performance in a hot and humid environment. Now, the issue with glycerol historically was that it was banned by WADA because it could be used as a masking agent for other uh, banned substances. More recently, I believe they took it off the banned substance list. So I think theoretically any athlete could use glycerol if they want. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, there was more interest in using sodium as kind of a similar hyperhydrating agent. Because the more sodium you kind of have in your blood, uh, in general, you may be able to hold on uh, to more fluid. That's part of the rationale for people uh, adding extra sodium to their post-exercise beverages is it helps you kind of hold on to more of the fluid you ingest. So, for example, if you ingested one liter of water uh, versus one liter of a sodium-rich beverage, over the next four hours, you're going to pee out more of that pure water uh, mm-hmm. because there's less sodium in it. So there's been a couple of studies. Stacey Sims has done a couple of them. She did one with men, one with women. 
where she had them hyperhydrate with a very sodium-rich beverage, um, I think starting a couple hours or 90 minutes before exercise in the hot environment, and found that they were able to go a little bit longer in a hot environment when, they're, when they hyperhydrated with a sodium-rich beverage, with the idea that maybe uh, you just kind of delay uh, when a significant level of dehydration occurs. It just takes a little bit longer to get there because you start off with more fluid uh, that you've held on to. The caveat to those research studies would be that most of them did not allow people to drink much during the exercise itself. So I don't know about the mm. generalizability of that to like an Ironman, you know, that's a little bit harder to say. So mm-hmm. an athlete could try that uh, if they're anticipating that they're going to sweat a lot and they may have limited access to fluid during the event, you know, hyperhydrating with a sodium rich beverage or even a glycerol rich beverage uh, is something they can consider. Now, during, there have been a handful of studies that have tried to isolate, does sodium itself do anything for performance? Now, undoubtedly, electrolyte beverages with carbohydrates have been shown to extend performance in some circumstances or improve performance. But the studies that have just given people sodium tablets or capsules, for the most part, they have not shown any benefits to performance itself. In some cases, you see some differences with Uh, perceptions of thirst and drinking rates and uh, the amount of uh, fluid that people retain. But for whatever reason, those perceptual and physiological differences have not transferred to a performance benefit in the studies that have been done. Now, most of those studies have not been super long. There have been a couple that have done it, I think, with uh, half iron and Ironman triathletes. So I'm not ready to say that it's useless to consume sodium during exercise. I think in longer events, it makes more sense to do some of that. Uh, But to be honest, I think for most athletes, they don't need to focus hugely on the sodium during the event itself. I think it's probably more of a priority post-exercise and throughout the day to make sure that you're getting adequate sodium uh, because an athlete will lose a lot of sodium um, if they're exercising for 10 hours in sweating you know, one to two liters an hour. Uh, You do need to replace that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be during exercise itself. Got it. Yeah. You know, certainly a lot of athletes just assume got to take in supplements, you know, when it's hot and that certainly can also lead to, to cramping or other issues if, if taking in too much. So keep that in mind. What I love about the book is that you can isolate these problems in a way like there's so many different possible reasons for all these different symptoms. And I think you have 10 or 12 different, you know, symptoms that you might have from, um, you know, gut issues. Um, but what might be the reason for them? And then the strategies to, to, to alleviate them are, are, are just so mixed. There's no one source. Um, you also get into obviously the psychological side of, of racing and training and, you know, how that affects gut issues, um, stress and anxiety. And you mentioned, you know, some NFL, NBA players that, you know, have documented problems around anxiety disorders and how they, you know, get nausea and have to vomit almost between or before every single game. Um, so I I think it's great that you brought up the psychology side of things. Um, what what were your findings there and maybe possible uh, ways to go about alleviating some of those issues and especially pre-race anxiety? Mm-hmm. 
So it's been kind of an underappreciated factor in gut problems in athletes, at least from a research perspective. I mean, there's lots of anecdotes of recreational and professional athletes experiencing gut issues, nausea, vomiting before competition because of how stressed and anxious they are. So, you know, the anecdotes I give in the book, uh, Bill Russell supposedly vomited before many of his really big basketball games. You know, there's a offensive guard from the Philadelphia Eagles, Brandon Brooks, who has been hospitalized, has missed a lot of games in some cases because he's had an anxiety disorder that contributes to nausea and vomiting. Uh, which, you know, he kind of admitted to and told, even though, you know, with football, it's kind of a tough man sport. And I think that's got to be pretty tough to uh, tell the world that that's an issue you're dealing with in a sport that kind of has that mentality. Right. But for endurance athletes, I've done a couple of studies now in the last few years, simply simply looking at the correlations between levels of anxiety and stress and the incidence and severity of these gut problems. Probably the most relevant one Uh, we just published in the last half year, I think, where we asked people to report kind of their general levels of anxiety, um, kind of habitually, like how do you typically feel? And then on the morning of a race and the race, it could be a, uh, I believe, triathlon running race, so long as it's 60 minutes or longer. And those athletes who reported the highest levels of anxiety on the morning of the race in comparison to those who had lower levels of anxiety had about five times the odds of experiencing substantial nausea uh, as one example. So definitely these links exist in athletes. We're starting to document that now more and more with research. The question is, what can we do about it practically to get a handle on this? Uh, This is where it starts to get a little bit speculative. Uh, I've got a PhD student who's hoping to do some research this year to address this uh, actually with an intervention. But what you might try as an athlete at this point is going to be something like slow, deep breathing, mindfulness, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, maybe relaxing music. So anything that really activates the kind of the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system, Uh, because what happens probably for a lot of these athletes who are overly stressed or anxious is that they've just got too much sympathetic nervous system activity going on. Mm-hmm. And anything that can kind of calm you down and, and activate that parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, in theory, could help with some of these gut issues. Now, this has not been shown in athletes, but there are some studies in other populations that seem to confirm that this is likely to have some benefit. We just need to show it uh, experimentally in athletes um, to really say for sure. But there's pretty low risk to doing these things, right? I mean, for right. deep breathing, I mean, I, I can't really think of much of a risk uh, to doing that. little yoga, a little meditation in the morning, 4 a.m. before the Ironman can only help. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, starting to wrap up here, how about some general thoughts around working um, gut training into your training program? Are we talking about three days a week, every day? Is it just the long sessions? You know, how much time should we put into the actual, I guess, race day, um, you know, simulation as a, as it relates to nutrition and, and just kind of training the gut? Yeah. Really good question. I think the amount of time and effort you put into it is proportional to how aggressive you're going to be on race day, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Uh, if you're going to be someone who's really trying to hydrate, 
and keep up with your sweat rates pretty closely. If you are someone who's going to be consuming more than 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, then yes, especially leading up to that race, you know, within two to three weeks beforehand, uh, probably at a minimum, you want to probably do this a couple times per week just to see how it goes, to fine tune things. Um, you know, for someone who's middle of the pack runner or triathlete who's not as ag- aggressive about their per hour fluid and food intake, then you know, practice it a few times leading up to the race. And if everything feels okay, then I think that's probably going to be adequate for a lot of athletes. But, uh, you know, the problem is it's hard to simulate what happens after 10 hours, right? Once you've (laughs) dehydrated in a hot environment during a race, that's a hard thing to simulate. Yeah. Most people don't do a full Ironman in training and obviously it's not all that recommended. So it can be tough to actually simulate those race day conditions. Exactly. So I, you can only do so much, but that's kind of my thought on it is if you're going to be more aggressive about your nutritional intake in terms of fluid and carbohydrate um, per hour rate, then you need to spend more time on it um, to make sure that uh, it's not going to be a disaster on race day. Right. Well, I also, you know, there's differences in, in um, I guess, sport types. You know, if you think of a cyclist that might race 20 times a year, they have they have A, B, and C races, and, and they might have more C races, obviously, than B races. So they, they have more time to experiment actual within racing itself. Um, Ironman athletes, 70.3, tend to race, well, you know, very few times per year. So it's just, uh, ma- you know, the magnitude of the possibilities it just uh, of, of things that could go wrong, you know, kind of go up in, in that you haven't had the chance to experiment. But there there comes in the, the wisdom, mm-hmm. of the experience of being an athlete and having the years under your belt and knowing what works for you, what doesn't. So, yeah, I think understanding that if something goes wrong during a race, you know, obviously, if it's like the Olympics and you're going for a medal, that's hard to swallow. But if it's, you know, a race that isn't for a championship or something like that just take and learn from it because it's an experience um, that you can use to improve the next time you go down the course. And that's definitely true of kind of the nutrition plan and nutrition strategy. Yep. Well, I thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, There's so much covered in the book. I think it's a great reference book. So much in there um, that can last an entire career. And now you are presenting at our um, Endurance Coaching Summit in November, correct? That is correct. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Just so everybody knows, that's November 17 through 19. Uh, go to summit.trainingpeaks.com to sign up. And lastly, Patrick, how can people maybe follow you or contact you if they have uh, more questions? Yeah, probably uh, in terms of social media stuff that I use professionally is going to be Twitter. And if they want to follow me, my handle's at sportsrd underscore PhD. And the book, oh, does the book have a website? It does. Yeah. They can go to the athletescut.com as well. Um, Super. And they can find reviews and you can download like a sample chapter or a sample section of the textbook. If you want to give it a little preview, um, check out a few other things as well. Awesome. I learned a whole lot, a whole lot more for me to learn and experiment with. So I appreciate all the, all the advice and um, thank you so much. Thanks, Dirk. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, 
rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.